My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to Grey Mirror, a podcast from MIT Media Lab's Digital Currency Initiative on technology, society, and ethics. And unlike something like Black Mirror, which just looks at the negative impacts of technology on society, we are Grey Mirror, so we look at the positive and negative impacts of technology on society. And please, if you have any feedback, reach out on Twitter. And if you like the show, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Thanks. So today I chat with Devin Zugel, who's an open source product manager at GitHub, and she's also kind of famous in the SF tech Twitter sphere, which is always fun. Uh, and so we, we chat primarily about her new project, GitHub Sponsors, which is a project from GitHub uh, to pay open source contributors natively through the platform itself. It's, I think, a very important project. And so we chat kind of a behind the scenes look um, at that, uh, and especially get a philosophical around as well, which is thinking about how to measure the value of open source and things of that variety. Uh, and then the second big piece here is we look at cities, which is another passion of Devon's and is very connected to open source. And we primarily think about two main perspectives here and kind of pit them against each other. One one is the bottom-up Jane Jacobs perspective versus the kind of top-down seeing like a state perspective and kind of understand the pros and cons to each. I think there's one especially interesting thing that kind of pops out of that, which is tactical urbanism uh, and the kind of the norms around city mutability. And that's, that's something that Devin wants to really push uh, within cities these days. And then finally, we chat a little bit about how Devin thinks about Twitter, all that she's gained from it, uh, and how to use it yourself. So I'll do a deeper retro uh, at the end of the podcast, but for now, enjoy the interview with uh, Devin. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Gray Mirror. And today I'm super excited to interview Devin Zugel. Uh, Devin, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thanks, Reese. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, excited to dive in and chat. There's going to be kind of three big buckets here. We're going to chat about Devin's work with funding open source software, especially around GitHub sponsors. We're going to chat about Devin's weird section of the Twitter sphere. Um, and then we're going to chat about cities. Uh, so let's start with funding open source software. Could you start by just giving an overview? So you work for GitHub and you've, uh, you're on the sponsors team or something. So just what is GitHub sponsors and what's the goal and how's it going? <laughs> sure. I'm super excited to talk about GitHub sponsors. So um uh, about almost exactly a month ago, we launched the beta for GitHub Sponsors, which is financial infrastructure for open source developers. Um, and our goal really is uh, for open source to one day be a, a very serious career path that people consider. Uh, so like if you're if there's three high school kids sitting in a circle asking each other, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? One of them says a doctor, another one says a lawyer, and another one should say, I want to be an open source developer. Nice. Um, that's, of course, a long-term vision. And there's a lot of things that we and the community as a whole need to do to get there. But we see GitHub sponsors as a really important step forward. Uh, and we're, we're excited to be joining in on this really awesome adventure. Yeah, I, I really love that um, that overview and that that macro mission and goal. And I think it's it's kind of like because people will say things like, "Hey, I want to be a teacher," or like, "I want." They might want to work for the public good in various ways. And to some extent, this is. Or do you see that as like, if I said I wanted to be a coder for the public good, uh, would you would you count that as a as a checkbox for your um, you know open source uh, for, for your metric there? Yeah, I love that. Um, I I think actually that framing is really special because I think. It's sort of like uh, when people say they want to go be a public servant, uh, working working in a city government or something like that. I think building open source is building our digital infrastructure, and it, it really is for the public good. And, and frankly, right now, I think the thing that drives a lot of open source developers is mostly for public good because they're not paid much, if at all, to do what they do. Um, and so it's kind of 
like I actually don't know if this is quite uh, the the best state of the world because I think right now teachers are super underpaid considering the value that they bring to society. But um, it's probably a step forward of where we are. So I think in my ideal world, uh, both teachers, great teachers and great open source developers would both be millionaires. Um, nice. But but in the interim, <laughs> I would be happy with uh, open source developers getting a little closer to where teachers are right now. Nice. Yeah. Um, so in, tell me specifically just like how does GitHub sponsors work? Is it just like a Patreon model or, or how can I pay people and how does it work? Yeah, it's a tiered model. Uh, so you can, let's say, yeah, you, Reese, uh, are an awesome open source developer, and I, Devin, really want to support your work. Um, Thank you. I, can, I can go to you. <laughs> you're welcome. I can go to your GitHub profile, um, and I can you, you can select one of the tiers that you wrote up and say, uh, you know, for $5 a month, I'll get a little badge on my profile that says I'm one of your sponsors. Um, maybe for $50 a month, I'll get an hour of like video chat time with you. And the tiers are designed by the sponsored developer themselves. So uh, GitHub does not tell them what to put there, though we do give guidance and help just because it it can be a little uh, tricky to put together a really good set of tiers. Um, And basically we we see the the sponsorship profile as a way for the sponsored developer to represent represent themselves exactly how they see fit. So we've seen quite a range of how people use tiers. Some people focus them much more on uh, individuals giving them money, mostly as sort of like a token of appreciation and uh, as a way to sort of to get that badge and show that they're a supporter. But then some others, some other sponsored developers uh, have much higher tiers that are in the thousands of dollars range. And those are much more geared towards, um, maybe the CTO of a company who puts their credit card down and that CTO knows that their company uses um, that open source project extensively in their software. So that's almost more like a business transaction. Uh, Hmm. So there's quite a range and we've intentionally left it pretty flexible. Uh, And the thing we've built right now is very much, we were of the philosophy that we want to build sort of the smallest useful thing possible, put it out there, see how people use it and then build from there. Uh, and so that's the stage that we're at right now. Nice. Yeah. And and I just want to, I guess, emphasize for our listeners that this is kind of a big deal that you've had <laughs> um, GitHub, which is a very powerful thing that essentially is the back end for how all the coders around all the interwebs, um, you know, collaborate on code. Uh, that GitHub is making uh, a, a kind of a funding layer for all the people who create all this great open source infrastructure. And so we've seen this, we've seen these kinds of things before with stuff like Open Collective or Gitcoin or things of that variety, but now it is kind of being baked into the actual platform itself, which I think could be very powerful. Um, on that kind of note, how do you see how do you see your competitors here? Um, someone like Open Collect. It's kind of a weird question when you're like you're just trying to do public good stuff and you're trying to get like people paid, but like who do you see as your competitors? I think it's a good question. I, I actually don't frame them as competitors because <laughs> frankly, GitHub, GitHub is making no money on this, and actually we're we're losing yeah. a lot of money on it, right? We we have we're covering all the transaction costs, and also we have a matching fund. Um, so really, uh, from from sort of like a, a corporate like corporate goals perspective, what we intend is for open source to be stronger and healthier mm-hmm. because when that happens, GitHub is stronger. Uh, so in that vein, I am thrilled to see Open Collective and GitHub, and get, sorry, Gitcoin uh, and, and others like Linux Foundation and so on, Software Freedom Conservancy and so on. Uh, I'm so happy to see them all in the space because I think we ultimately are all working for the same goal. 
and we're all we're all sort of benefiting each other. Um, and another thing I would add is that each of us sort of solves a different piece of the puzzle. Uh, we do different things. Um, like Gitcoin offers an, a nice range of options from like fellowships to bounties and so on. Open Collective is mostly focused on uh, teams of people and collectives of people. Uh, they, they believe really strongly that it's groups that um, make things happen. And they offer great tools around that. Uh, and GitHub Sponsors at the moment is really focused on sort of the individual developers behind projects. So I, I say that because um, I, I think for when people say, what's the solution for open source funding? Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's actually the wrong question because it's going to be a basket of options. Um, there's no silver bullet here. Every project is super different. Every group of people is super different. Um, so I'm just thrilled to see tons of other people in the space. Yep. Uh, and yeah. And then as one other thing um, that, that I'll add uh, is that it's kind of like saying that um, like there's one business model that will work for every company. Well, no, there's not. <laughs> there are subscription business models. There are product business models. Uh, there are logistic type companies. There's a huge range of companies. You would never say that there should be one business model that works for every single for-profit company out there. I think the same thing can be said for open source projects. Um, there's not going to be sort of one quote business model or, or funding model for every open source project. They're all going to, they're all serving different problems. Uh, so they're going to need different solutions. So I, I kind of regret saying that because I wish it were simple and I wish that I could just like come forward and say there's one solution to this problem, um, but there's not. So I'm thrilled, thrilled, thrilled uh, that all of these people are in the space and we're actually collaborating with with all of them to, and they're in uh, the new funding.yaml file that we've added. So yeah. I could go, I could wax on this forever, but uh, point is like, I'm really happy to see them all in the space and they've been a huge inspiration for me personally. That, and let me just, so I, that's great. I'm glad to hear all of that. And it sounds like, and the nice thing with this stuff and, and also interested, I'll be interested to see how this plays out over time of when you have a bunch of people who are just trying to co-evolve towards a shared goal. Um, yeah, you're not competing for like a specific winner or loser. It's like, everybody's just trying to macro the macro goal of all of you is like, if, you know, to make it so that kids say, Hey, I want to be code for the public good when they're, you know, and be an open source contributor, that would be a great, um, outcome for everybody. Tell me more about this funding file, a funding.md or something. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's, it's funding.yml. Um, okay. And effectively, uh, if you add, uh, a, just like you can put a readme in, in your, your, uh, in your repository, you can also put funding.yml in there, a YAML file where, uh, you can list your different funding methods, which of course includes GitHub sponsors. So like if you have a sponsorship profile, you can put your, your sponsorship there. Uh, but also if you have, if your project has an open collective, um, or a Gitcoin or a Patreon account, something like that, you can put those all in there too. Uh, because we want to make it easy for developers to receive funding how they see fit. And for some of them, it's going to be GitHub sponsors, but for some of them, it's not. For some of them, they think of themselves as a collective. They don't think of themselves as an individual developer. Uh, so they would put open collective there. Um, and we're, we're adding new platforms to that all the time, uh, mostly by request of users. Uh, and we, we're excited to see that list growing, the, the platforms that we support. And just to check, what is YAML? What is a, what is that file type? <laughs> oh, sorry. It's um, it's a it's it's a data it's structured data type basically where you can it's sort of 
Are you familiar with JSON? Yes. Okay, yeah, so, so it's so it's a JSON esque. Okay. It's sort of like JSON, but a little prettier, basically. Nice. nice. Okay. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Um, but yeah, that'll be. I am super excited, and something I know that we've been um, working with GitHub at with, at the place where I work, the Digital Currency Initiative, is a security.md file. Where in addition to a readme.md, you also have a security.md file. So that every open source repo says, "Oh, if there's a security issue, here's how you connect with the people." Um, and similarly, it seems like, yeah, if you have any kind of open source repo, here's how you can pay the people, or here's how they're getting paid. That makes sense. Um, so I guess you guys have released it, and in the first couple, I guess you released it between two and six weeks ago, maybe. Um, how has it been going? What are some things you've learned? Are there people sponsoring people? What's the vibe? Yeah, so we, we launched it on May 23rd. So I think it's almost exactly four weeks ago. Um, and it's going really well. Uh, I think we have a lot of people on the wait list. Um, and we've been starting to let folks off of that list. And we did our first payouts uh, late last week. So nice. and it I'm crossing my fingers right now, but I'm pretty sure it went well. <laughs> and people seem to have gotten the money in their bank accounts. Um, and uh, we're, we're super excited about it. Um, I think like there, there is a lot more to do, uh, but I'm extremely happy with the first, these first few steps that we've taken. And do you, what, what are your kind of uh, macro, like if you think about the next steps here or, you know, or the long-term vision, what, what do you see kind of playing out? Yeah. So um, right now, I'd say that our team is really focused on two things. One is scaling what we currently have, uh, because at the moment we have a limited beta um, and a lot of people who want to participate both as sponsored developers and as sponsors. Uh, so we want to be able to expand that as quickly as possible. And to do that, we have to nail down our operations. Um, things are going really well right now, so we're, that's why we felt like we were pretty good. We were com confident starting to let folks off of the waitlist. Uh, but there's a really big difference between, you know, dozens and hundreds of people and like tens of thousands of people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's going to continue being a learning process for us, and uh, we're doing a lot to sort of button down the hatches there and make sure that everything works well. Um, and the second thing is uh, corporate sponsorships. So we are really thrilled that there has been a lot of uh, funding enthusiasm from individuals to sp sponsor other individual developers. And like that really warms my heart to see how much the community supports each other. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, the money is at the companies. The companies have a ton of money. And uh, if you want a tsunami of money to come in and, uh, you know, lift all of the boats that are um, the open source developers, you need you need to talk to the companies. Um, and the best part is that the companies want to fund open source. Up until recently, I think that they just haven't had really easy avenues for it. Um, they like they're again, like we were discussing before, uh, sort of the open collectives of the world and Linux foundations of the world and so on did a pretty darn good job of, of starting to open up some avenues uh, for companies to support things. But for the most part, uh, the most that, that was still limited, you know, by the number of projects that were actually on those platforms, mm -hmm. uh, which is a lo rapidly growing number, but still, you know, not the majority of open source. Um, and uh, the result was that these companies kind of get stuck trying doing as much as they can to sponsor open source, but they're kind of only left with like funding conferences uh, and like giving swag to people, which both are great things. You know, <laughs> I, I like swag and I love going to conferences and meeting wonderful people. Um, but, you know, being the 
you know, 20th sponsor of a major conference probably has less impact than if you could spend that same money just directly funding the people who build your software. Uh, so on the margin, I think a lot of a lot of the money flowing into things like conferences and swag could be could be better used um, by go- going towards open source projects directly. So those are our two focuses. One is the scaling, uh, and there's a ton to do there. And then we're also starting to think about corporate sponsorships, uh, though that's still in the earlier stages because that's definitely a complex uh, complex issue that we want to get right. Yeah, that that one is going to be, I agree with thinking of it as like you have all these people that are funding conferences and it's like if those people that are funding conferences could just instead, um, you know, maybe, yeah, the, the, at some at the margin there, you could imagine some of those folks funding just the, the projects themselves. And that feels like a great um, uh, additional avenue for them to have an option for, if nothing else. Um, right. Do you think in an optimal, as that starts to happen, as we imagine this like deep future reality or whatever, um, what is in your mind? what is the optimal way that open source contributions you know get paid how does this value for value exchange work um is it you know for every commit that i do or you know how what's what's this weird future reality look like Mm, that's a really good question um i'm gonna get kind of abstract on you here yep that's Uh, what i'm looking for (laughs) (laughs) i think um so I'm also really, we're, we're going to talk about this later, it sounds like. Uh, and I'm, I'm also really interested in like transportation infrastructure. And I promise this will come back to open source. Um, and uh, in transportation infrastructure, people often talk about Fairbox recovery rates. Uh, effectively, what that is, is like what percentage of the cost of building uh, a, a piece of transportation infrastructure is covered by the ticket cost. Uh, so BART, the subway mm. that around the Bay area, um, you know, you know, you pay, I think it's something along, well, I should know the, the number off the top of my head, but it's something like $2 and 50 cents for a ride. Um, and, uh, how many tickets are sold every day. And then like the, over time, does that cover the costs of running this infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, people criticize BART because it, it, I think only has like a 40% fare mm. box recovery rate. Uh, but you know, I think that's completely the wrong way to look at it. Uh, it's an interesting number for sure, but it is not the right way to judge whether or not infrastructure is paying back its cost. Because if you look now at the land prices around a piece of transit infrastructure, let's say, um, the, the property right around a BART station, those property prices are incredibly high and that's not a coincidence. It's because they're connected to the rest of the region. Um, and what I'm trying to get at here is that the fare box recovery really doesn't uh, doesn't include all of the value that's created by the transit infrastructure. The businesses around a BART station get way more foot traffic going by and this way more sales. The offices uh, now have access to way more employees who can live farther away and come in closer. Um, and so that's just looking at the fare box recovery rate is an easy number to look at, but it's actually not the thing that you're trying to measure. And it's not why we build transportation infrastructure. I see open source is pretty similar to this. Um, I think that it's, it's hard to measure the direct value of this open source, but uh, we need to try to do it. And we need to start making it possible for open source creators to actually get some of the returns on that, 
amazing investment that they've made in our community. Um, Nadia, who I think you had on this podcast a while back, um, she's awesome for one thing and a huge, huge inspiration for the work I do. Um, she wrote an essay, a blog post a few years ago, I think around the time of the Instagram acquisition. And, uh, she made this, these very, very conservative estimates saying like, okay, it took, I think I'm going to get all of the following numbers wrong. (laughs) Um, she said it took like. I think it was like two years or something like that for, for Instagram to go from like creation of the company to selling for a billion dollars or whatever to, to Facebook. Um, And then uh, she, she roughly estimated, okay, well it probably would have taken them about twice as long if they had to build out all the open source that they used to make that happen. And I think that's a super conservative estimate. I think it's more like, like a lifetime longer because <laughs> all the open source they use is like quite complex stuff, uh, especially if you consider like the programming languages that they use, like building programming languages Tough. is a lot of work. <laughs> um, but let's just say it, t- it took them two years instead of four years because that's still very conservative. And what she basically figured out was that I think it was like $143 million of the Instagram acquisition. If you just look at the time value of money, if you say like, if they earned that billion dollars two years later, how much less would that be valued? If you look at the time value of money, it's $143 million. Um, and if just if we could just take that money and distribute it to the open source developers, like that would be one of the, the biggest windfalls in all of open source history. Like every year there's there's only tens of millions of dollars that go towards funding open source. Um, so and yet that was just a single acquisition albeit a large one, uh, that conservatively was much, much more valuable because of open source. So, so what I'm trying to get at here is like, I would love some way to measure and capture that amazing increase in value that happens uh, because we have open source. That's sort of similar to BART raising the property values of all of the, the land around it. Um, now, I don't exactly know how to get there. Mm-hmm. And um, I... I don't really think of GitHub sponsors as like doing that exactly. Uh, I think it starts giving people avenues to do this when they realize when they realize the value that is uh, being given to them as a result of open source. Um, but it's not actually it's not actually like taking that increase directly. And I'm not sure if that would even make sense. the 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 comparison may not even fully fit there. But I think it's really good inspiration for how I'm th- how I personally think about the problem and how I, I would like the rest of the world to think about it more, um, because ultimately open source just creates so much more value f- for all of us, and it's in- just crazy to me that we don't have a better way of channeling some of that value back to the people who create it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I think, and I mean, I think the connection to transportation is definitely good. And I mean, just the moment that you start to think about infrastructure and you're like, oh, we have so much infrastructure in our physical world. And you're like, oh God, there's also a ton of infrastructure in our digital world. How are we yeah. funding that? Um, making that connection. And then I, I, I think that the funny thing is if you have those fare box recovery rates, 
um, it feels like we're not even at that point yet for open source software where it's like, mm-hmm. I, it would be nice in my mind just to even get that first metric out there to be like, look, here's what, you know, and I guess, yeah, things like crypto might be starting to get close to this, but something around like how much money, I guess, yeah, um, it's kind of, it's weird because people pay to use the, um, in kind of like a club good way, people pay to use some of these uh, public infrastructures like subways or whatever, while on the internet, a lot of them are non-club goods where you can, anybody can publicly use some of this infrastructure. So I think it's, I think that the fun fare box, I'm just thinking out loud here, obviously, but I think the fare box recovery rate is similar to a club good, like protocol thing with crypto where you're paying for the keys to access these APIs. Um, but then as, and then that would just be step one. But as you say, in general, it would be really nice for us to somehow quantify or even feel what it's like that all of this great open source infrastructure is kind of allowing for all these other beautiful flowers to bloom um, and and making sure that that is well funded. So I also agree with you that I don't know how that's going to happen. Though I do think that uh, it's definitely, it feels less further along than the physical world. Yeah, actually, that bringing it to crypto, uh, this is why I'm so excited about crypto. I think it's one of, well, it's one of the reasons I'm so excited about crypto. Um, I think it's it's providing new primitives for capturing this yep. kind of value. And, uh, you know, sort of the, the idea that if you invest in a network early and the, the value of that coin rises, it's kind of like investing in land. Um, now, there's some, there's some real issues with that comparison sometimes, which we can get a little more detail into if you want, but, uh, but like, let's put it this way. Um, my, uh, my, my family owns a home in the Bay area and, uh, they, they bought that home. Mm, I don't know, 30 years ago. And in that time, the Bay area has grown a huge amount in value. And at least I'm obviously a little biased, but I think that my parents have done a lot to make their community better. Um, and they, they're a really good addition to the community. And so I think it's wonderful that the the increase of value in their house like went went way up because they sort of invested in that community. Mm-hmm. Now, again, there are that that comparison is rife with issues that again we can get into. Um, but I think like crypto crypto tokens have a bit of this, uh, where if you buy in early and then you say, I'm going to invest in this this network and I'm going to make it useful for people. Uh, I think it's wonderful that you end up capturing some of that value. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so let's let's actually transition to a bit for the to like the city side here, um, and and ask more about your passion about cities. If you look at like Devin's website on the interweb, she's into city stuff. Um, let's start with um, the city's reading list that you have, and uh, and I, I guess let, let me just double check for a second. Uh, seeing like a state and the life and death of great American cities are not. Um, and on your reading list, they're there, but you don't give a summary of them. But have you um, have you read them and uh, and things of that variety? I have read them. Uh, to be honest, I so so I mentioned that the philosophy for GitHub sponsors was to get out like a small thing that was useful for people and then extend it from there. Uh, I kind of have that viewpoint with my my uh, blog posts too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where sometimes I'm like, once this blog post is like interesting enough to be published. Do I'm going to just push it and then I'll improve it. <laughs> totally, totally. And I was just checking to see. So like, I think that there's a seeing like a state and the life of death of great American cities. They are this great kind of like bottom up vibe around how to design cities. Um, and I think that um, folks uh, both in the city planning world and also in this like weird ribbon farm meta rationality world are super into this like um, bottom up way of viewing the world. Do you 
how much do you are you into that? Like, do you do you buy the arguments made in seeing like a state in the life and death of great American cities, or you know, could you steel man like the counter arguments? Mm, um, I, I definitely buy into them. Yeah. Uh, I think <laughs> one of the things I love about seeing like a state in particular is. I think so. So there's a lot of books out there that give a lot of examples about a thing. And I usually don't like those books because yeah. usually they give kind of trite examples that don't give you that much more depth about the thing. And you're like, this book could have been a pamphlet. And you just added examples because you're just trying to fill the pages and make it look impressive. Um, seeing like a state is nothing like that. It is, it is basically a book about a single idea and it has a lot of examples, but those examples are so deep um, and it like feels like looking at a very multifaceted object and like turning it around and seeing how it catches the light from every single angle. Um, and it's just, it really is a beautiful book. And it's one of, the, when I picked it up, I started reading it and I kind of realized it was one of these example books. And I was just like, Oh God, I guess I, I just, I can read the first chapter and that'll be fine. <laughs> I, then I'll, I'll get like 80% of the value. But then I read a few of the examples and I was just like, oh my goodness, every example I read deepens my understanding of this concept. Um, so just the way it's written is amazing to me. Uh, and like, I now have a new appreciation for examples uh, in a way that I, I didn't think I had before. Um, but to speak more to the ideas in the book, um, I would say, yeah, I'd say like, I think one of the, the biggest takeaways that I got from it is how optimization brings fragility with it yeah. um, and how in life there's sort of a both, both personally and in the work you do. And as you're designing systems, there's a real fragility to trying to make things better in a particular context. Um, but also if you don't make things better in a particular context, there's also costs to that. So you're, you're finding sort of this efficient frontier between optimization and fragility and, um, that that was a really really interesting concept. One of the examples that the author gives around that that uh, is most vivid for me is uh, German forestry. Um, he talks about how uh, in these German forests they started out as natural growth forests with a wide diversity of trees um, all scattered around, you know, no control at all. And the these people started going, foresters started coming in, chopping down the trees for the wood. And they realized like, oh, well, some of these trees don't get enough light because they're blocked by other trees and or they're like farther away than they could be. And we could fit more trees in here. So they started turning, putting the trees into like little optimal rows. And then they realized, oh, this kind of tree makes way more useful wood than the other one. So we're going to we're going to cut down all the other trees and just keep planting the one high producing tree. Uh, and they keep they keep basically making it more and more quote legible. That's the sort of word of the book. It's legible, and uh, ultimately they end up with an orchard with extremely ordered trees. They all look identical, and they're all uh, very pristine and well ordered. Um, and this is great. They increase the yield of the wood that they're chopping down tremendously, and they're way more productive. Um, and then a plague comes and wipes out the entire forest all at once. And, uh, you know, the next decade or two is spent just like rebuilding trees from the ground up. And that whole time they have like produced no wood. And uh, I don't remember if the book actually says this or not, but the implication I think is that like the integral over that is actually less than if they had left it a little bit more stable uh, with a bunch of different types of trees. 
Um, even though the rate per year is a little lower, the overall amount is higher. And also you don't end up having these extreme shocks to the system where you're making out like a bandit for decades and then suddenly you have no income whatsoever because you have no wood. Uh, and that that was really quite interesting to me and actually has changed the way I operate my life quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's a very deep idea, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and just for, I, I really like the, and, and just to, to clarify for our listeners for a second, the, the seeing like a state is the idea that from this top down perspective, you try to optimize as Devin is saying, you try to optimize the thing, optimize the thing, make it more and more legible um, and turn it into a bunch of grids and rows. And then that thing will be perfect. But in fact, that optimization, as you say, leads to fragility and there's kind of a balance there that we should work at. I also like your idea of um, the word of the book. Uh, I, I imagine that, I think that'd be a good thing across all books of just like, what is the main word? Um, that each of these books use. And I think that there's, and I, but I want to, I want to explore the pushback here for a second, which is this idea of seeing like a state, there's a good um, city example there um, with Brasilia, which was the city that they tried to plan. It was like super gritty and it like didn't work out at all. They were like, this is going to be the optimal city. And it was like, Oh God, no one actually likes it versus the kind of bottom up uh, life and death of great American cities where people are like in there and they're like, Ooh, this is what it likes to, to, this is what it's like to be around these streets and to like to live here. And to like the, the lived experience of, of being, in there instead of this top-down perspective. How do you see, though, like, I think we both agree that we're mostly of the, um, we think that seeing like a state is an anti-pattern, that the life of death of great American cities is a good pattern. How, mm. though, like, what what do you see as the primary, like, you know, counter-arguments here? What are the, you know, how, what should we, what should be on this other end of the spectrum where it's like, uh, but also this? Oh, so I actually think there's a lot of things on the other end of the, the spectrum. See? And um, it's actually... It's all about trade-offs, I think. Um, and it depends on what you're trying to do and what values you hold for a particular goal. So to be specific, uh, I think in the open source world, there well, let's put it this way. I think that centralization and that top-down visibility can be super efficient. Like yeah. if you know actually what you're trying to get done, uh, you can just do it and you don't have to ask Getting consensus is one of the most time-consuming things that you can do. Um, Yeah. So like one example in the city context is uh, the rebuilding of Paris. And Paris is one of the most beloved cities on earth, Um, maybe the most beloved city on earth. And it looks the way it does because uh, Napoleon III, an emperor of France, uh, made it that way with a guy named Baron von Hausmann, who was like the, the lead of the project. And uh, basically, Napoleon had this vision for what he wanted Paris to look like. And he told von Hausmann, you can do whatever you need to do to make this happen. And uh, Paris, pre-Napoleon III, uh, was this warren of streets and um, nothing was ordered. There was sewage just like in the streets. Uh, People couldn't really cross the city because it was just took too long because it was like going through a maze um, and people were sick and like, it was really a mess. Uh, not, not, a, not a great place to live. And Napoleon saw it as his legacy to make this city a modern city with sewage, transportation, um, beauty. And uh, to make that happen, his, this guy von Baron von Hausmann uh, basically tore down entire neighborhoods to have boulevards cut through the city um, if you've ever been to Paris, you know, those boulevards are super straight and they just slice through these old neighborhoods. Um, 
And uh, he didn't really ask people for permission. You know, he, he just did it. And hundreds of thousands of people's lives were ruined for this. Uh, and, you know, on the plus side, you end up, you know, hundreds of years later with one of the most gorgeous cities ever um, and cleanliness. And there's no, like, human refuse in the street. Huge plus. Um, but at the same time, the people who were sacrificed to make that happen may not agree that that was the right trade-off. Um, and I, I do think like it's actually not a clear answer. Like I don't, I don't have a final judgment for, for that project. I think that there are like clear benefits and there are clear costs and I, I I'm, don't know how to weigh those things. Um, I personally am glad that Paris is the way it is, but it's easy for me to say, cause I wasn't around when they, they did what they did. Um, so I, like, I think actually an interesting counter example is uh, Robert Moses from New York city. Mm-hmm. He was, he, many people actually call him the Baron von Hausmann of New York. Uh, and he's much maligned by people I know. And um, I think a lot of people who know who he is think, think that he was very ruthless uh, in, in, tearing down entire neighborhoods to also build infrastructure. Um, and I do think that he was less effective than von Hausmann. Like the, the results that he had were actually just not that great for the most part. Uh, but I also think that most of the judgment we have against him is because it's not as far in the past. It's like, there are some people who their grandmother, uh, you know, was moved into tenement housing because uh, Moses didn't well, wanted, wanted to build a bridge through, through that neighborhood or something like that. Uh, whereas no one who was alive during the Napo- Napoleonic period, uh, it can like talk to us about their problems. Today. Um, so anyways, I'm, I'm digressing a bit, but uh, point is that there is, there are huge benefits to central planning um, and you can get things done in ways that you just can't when everybody has to agree. Um, but that's both a feature and a bug. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And I think I, I do love your uh, the example of um, both the Napoleon times making all the big, uh, you know, uh, big uh, broadways or avenues, and then also the Moses thing. It reminds me of um, a uh, there's the dam, the big Three Gorges Dam in China, and it's mm-hmm. like okay, you you, you mean, like we had to displace you know a million people for this, but like from the point of view of the planet, it's like it's probably help you know happy. And so there's um, who should we how do we balance it? And I think right now people are more against it but maybe in you know 150 years people will be more for it because those people that were against it can't talk um about it that time um so i have a question for you specifically so i agree with those those general counter argument um the macro one specifically i want to i want to ask a different question here though which is and I, we chat about this a bit uh, at Radical Exchange, but we weren't able to go deep, so I want to go a little bit deeper here. So what? So I'm a person who I think um, I would like to be a good community member. I would I, I think in this cool way about cities, and I want these cities to be beautiful. And um, how though should I? And I also like I work at MIT. I have enough money. I can like give back. I can if I need to spend my time, maybe I can spend time on things. What should I do? Um, to around my community in order and especially like thinking like what kind of proto example could i build that we could then duplicate across many cities such that like the proto example was good and duplicates of the proto example were all good i.e like at a micro micro community level what can i do what can individuals do (laughs) does that question make sense yeah yeah it does make sense um 
I think it's hard, but I have a few examples that come to mind of, of peop- individuals who seem to be making a big difference in their communities. Um, I will preface this by saying it's like really hard to measure the impact. Mm-hmm. So it might just be that like these things feel good to me and uh, I don't, they're not actually affecting anything, but it seems like they are. So uh, one example is uh, I have a friend named Patrick, who's a huge cyclist. Um, and uh, he um, makes a point of, texting i think it's his supervisor his like district supervisor here in san francisco every time he sees something wrong with a bike lane that he's mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. he's just become like this earworm for them where he he does not rest uh, and at first they were annoyed and they didn't do anything about it but then he just kept doing it and like they couldn't ignore him and sure enough like a lot of the problems he pointed out started getting solved and uh better than that like they, they also started proactively solving other problems more because they like wanted to catch them before he would annoy them with it. Uh, and sure, that's kind of small, but uh, I, I can tell you it's impacted my life. Like I, I've noticed huge street improvements in San Francisco recently. Uh, I can't say that it's like all Patrick's doing. Um, you know, I'm sure he'd love to get the credit though. I'll, I'll give him the credit. I'm sure it's all Patrick's doing. <laughs> um, but like just yesterday uh, on my bike to work, I noticed that there's this one little section where it was actually a very nice Kermit bike lane, which is when they put the green on, on mm. the, the ground that used to cut through some traffic. And then they, they had, they spent a weekend and they rearranged it so that it went straight. And so you didn't have to cut across some traffic. Uh, it's easier to explain if I show you an image, but the, I think you basically get the point. They made it better, like noticeably yeah. better. And it was like a significant change. Um, and, uh, when I saw that, I like specifically thought, oh, this is the kind of thing that Patrick would have complained about. Uh, and they changed it. That's wonderful. Um, so that's one example. I think another one is, uh, there's this general concept that I've heard about called tactical urbanism. And it's the idea that making sort of small, cheap prototype changes in your city, uh, both are useful directly but then also will inspire people to realize that they can change their environment. Mm. So uh, an example of this is uh, in, in New York city. Um, I don't remember how long ago, but uh, within the last decade, I think uh, they, they put um, New York city used to have tons of cars. Sorry. Uh, not New York city. Um, uh, Times square in New York city used to have tons of cars driving through at full speeds. I was just, in my view, like a huge shame because Times Square is like one of those most iconic places in the U.S. It's a place where a lot of people want to go to walk around. The traffic is probably going to be like standstill there anyways. So the cars aren't even really losing out if you just redirect them. And for like a week or something like that, they they experimented with just putting a bunch of cheapo lawn chairs out on uh, all around Times Square and blocking the roads off so people had to go around. And they just saw like how that affected traffic patterns, uh, whether or not more people ended up walking around Times Square. And sure enough, it did. Like It, it had all of those positive effects that they, they thought might happen. Um, and the, the traffic in the area didn't get any worse. And also pedestrians enjoyed Times Square far, far better. Uh, and so because they did that really cheap experiment, they uh, quickly, soon after, they they invested more and they painted the streets more nicely so it was more clear that it was all pedestrian. They put more formal blockades on the streets. 
they put like nice benches in place and Times Square is a much better place to be than it was before. Um, and so I think it's the sort of thing I, I it, it, that was driven as far as I understand by like a, a single person who just said, why don't we do this? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously they had to get approvals from more people in the city uh, for that particular one, but there's other cheaper things you can do like um, putting instead of, you, you could uh, rent a parking space. Some people, some of the friends I talked to on Twitter did this uh, a few weeks back. They they rented a parking space near City Hall here in San Francisco. And instead of parking a car in that that parking space, they put uh, a bunch of desks and they, they co-worked from the parking spot. Hip, uh, which, very hip. <laughs> yeah, so fun. Um, I, I wasn't able to join, unfortunately, because I had a meeting at the same time. Uh, but... I wanted to, and it looked really fun. And I think it was really inspirational to, to a lot of people walking past where they realized like, oh, we could use that space differently. Huh. Uh, and you can do it so cheaply. Um, so uh, I, I guess what I'd say is like, it, it's hard to change big things. It, it's really hard to, you know, make rail better in your city and like, at least in the short term, but you can do things that help people realize that cities are less static. And uh, I think like that's been a a big thing for me personally is realizing that even though cities feel like they take a really long time to change, I think a lot of that is a self-fulfilling prophecy where people think that their city won't change. So they just don't even do anything about it in the first place. Um, But if you just go out and start making the changes with like duct tape and some, and some like plywood uh, and just build something kind of crappy just to show the, a proof of concept something's possible, then uh, we can really open the doors of what people have are, are considering, I think. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I think, and I, I'm hearing that as have a macro, ch- change the norm that says, hey, cities are not changeable to, hey, cities are really changeable. They're not static. You can do what you want. Um, right. I agree with that generally. And I also think... Uh, at a, I will, <laughs> there's, there's a, there's a sub, there's kind of more of like a seeing like a state version of this question or like a seeing like a bottom up organism version of this question, which is like, is there, are there, I want to find something like good repeatable patterns that you can duplicate across all cities, but I don't, I think that's a different thread that we should go on yet. <laughs> so one final yeah. question before we wrap up for today. Um, I think, so there are, uh, for the folks who are listening, who are, perhaps older or less into tech um the whole the world of tech uh is it exists on twitter to some extent and there's these um various exchanges happen on twitter and there's like people who have power in a non-twitter way and there's people who have power and attention in a twitter way and devin is kind of a uh you you could call yourself like a mini celebrity of a a (laughs) sub niche of twitter you know everybody's their own mini celebrity of some sub niche um but uh so my question for you, and, and this is weird for people because it's like, oh, who's you, like this random person? It's like, you know, um, there's like this important Harvard professor on the podcast and there's this other person on the podcast. It's like in many ways, you might have more power than the um, random Harvard <laughs> professor. So um, my question for you is like, what, um, how do you think about Twitter in your Twitter sphere? What's, what's your identity with it? What are your goals with it? How do you expect it to change in the future? Wherever you want to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Man, to be honest, like uh, most of the things that have a lot of the good things that have happened to me in my life uh, recently have happened tangentially because of Twitter. Um, and I think a, a big part of it, I've met some of my closest friends through Twitter. 
Uh, it's like really a, a beautiful way to broadcast to the world what you care about. Uh, and so you both connect with people that you're going to like because they have very similar values to you and are learning the same sorts of things as you're learning. Um, but also it's a great way to find people to work with, uh, to, to, to collaborate with. Um, actually, before I joined GitHub, uh, I, I've been very involved in housing policy and land use policy uh, and land use economics. And uh, Nat Friedman, who's the CEO of GitHub now, uh, founded uh, a nonprofit that I was really active in uh, a while back. And that's how he and I originally met. And we worked together on housing policy stuff to try to get people to build more homes here in San Francisco, um, which is a whole separate conversation. Nice try. But, uh, nice try. <laughs> but uh, and it was it was through Twitter that we met. Uh, he reached out and we, we just started talking and then he had a project that he thought that uh, I would be a really good fit for. And I started working with him on it. And um, then when, when GitHub was acquired uh, and he was, and, and GitHub and uh, Nat was, became the CEO of GitHub. I reached out to him with, with some ideas about uh, what GitHub could do with open source. And the reason I felt so comfortable reaching out to him was because we were already friends uh, I, I deeply respect the man. I think he's also just like a wonderful person. And I, I also knew that I liked working with him. Um, and uh, now I work at GitHub. <laughs> like the, I wasn't actually even looking for a job. I just gave him, I just basically complained about a bunch of stuff about GitHub. <laughs> he, was, he responded and was like, well, why don't you join us? Uh, this uh, is, is um, was uh, it was an amazing opportunity that if you really go far all the way back in the timeline, it's because of Twitter. Um, and I would really recommend that more people broadcast the things that they care about uh, because it really just gives you a funnel of people who are reaching, who reach out to share their perspectives on things that you care about. Um, they'll give you feedback about the work that you do. And usually it's really constructive feedback. Um, and they'll just give you pointers too about the, the topics that you care about. So you, you can sort of extend your knowledge much more rapidly because people will just teach you things. So Twitter is a really good part of my life. Um, it really bums me out that some people have such negative experiences on Twitter. <laughs> I've personally not really encountered that too much. Uh, I was called fascist for the first time a while ago, and I'm mm. not great. Uh, it's kind of ironic given all, all the above things we talked about. But um, but mostly, like the vast, vast, vast majority of experiences I've had have been just a, a huge enrichment to my life uh, and uh, have made really big, big part of who I am today. So um, I, I try to encourage more people to just like share the things they care about in general. It doesn't have to be Twitter. Twitter is just like one nice way to do it. Uh, but if, if you tell, if you are very sincere about the things that you care about and you make that public, good things will find you. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with all that. I think that's a good, um, whether it's Twitter or whatever kind of social and it's, yeah. And I, I like, uh, I think Kevin Kwok has a thing of tapping a tuning fork and seeing who responds, which is like, here's what yeah. I'm thinking about. Where else are you guys? And it's nice when you can post, you know, I can post something about meta existential risk and then like, there's a crew that loves it, you know? And it's like, Oh, you're my people. What's up. Um, and so yeah, being able to do that, I think is very, very powerful. Um, so with that, get on Twitter people. Um, <laughs> so to wrap up, so Devin, where are you on Twitter and, or where should people find you on the interwebs? Sure. Uh, my my Twitter handle is at Devin Zugel. My name is weird, so I'm going to spell it for you. Yes, definitely. Um, it's spelled D-E-V-O-N-Z-U-E-G-E-L. 
Um, and then also my personal website is just devinzugel.com, uh, spelled the same way, but with a .com at the end. Nice. And what should people do if they're interested in learning more about something like GitHub Sponsors? Um, we've written a bunch of different blog posts about it. Uh, if you also go to github.com slash sponsors, we have a nice little landing page there. Um, and we've written like a philosophical FAQ sort of explaining our thinking about a bunch of these things that we're going to keep adding to. So uh, probably the landing page and that philosophical FAQ are the two best places to start. Nice, good. And I just want to tell all my listeners, um, yeah, I mean, if you have, you've definitely gotten value out of uh, the internet and or computers, i.e. open source before. And so go to GitHub Sponsors or any of those other things, Open Collective, whatever, and start giving people money because you probably have enough and you should do that. <laughs> um, and also try to mess around with your cities more in the tactical urbanist kind of way. Um, okay, great. Thank you so much, Devin, for coming on the show. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. Peace, listeners. Goodbye. Okay, so I'm moving my longer retrospectives and kind of thoughts to the end. So if you're here still with me, cool. If not, that's fine. I hope you enjoyed the episode, people that can't actually hear me right now. So, yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about the open source side and a little bit more about the city side. On the open source side, I think that Devin emphasizing the Fairbox recovery rate is a very, very good um, mapping from the city's world into the open source world. And that we need to kind of create a Fairbox recovery rate for open source. And I think the more important thing, though, that Devin's uh, emphasizing there is that the Fairbox recovery rate is really a a bare minimum. What you really have to do is look at the positive externalities of your actions and then try to incorporate those in with um, the actual value gained. So for something like open source, it is, hey, we've made this thing. Maybe it you know, gave specific value back to these people in these specific ways, but what was the overall macro impact of this from a pure when you measure all of the positive externalities? So I think that's a very powerful perspective and one that we should try to incorporate in with open source. Um, the other interesting piece here is on the funding um, YML document that uh, Devin talked about, which is on, it's kind of like a readme.md, but instead for funding. So any you know, new repo can add a funding.yml document. That's good. Um, and it also, so that it's not just GitHub. And at the same time, whenever you hear about somebody putting in a specific kind of document, or rather, if you hear about somebody saying, hey, we're going to take this thing that we also build and we'll allow other people to build it as well, you should both be excited because it's like, oh, sweet, have more people build the thing, not have it be a monopoly. And it's likely part of their business model from a commoditize the complement perspective. And what I mean by that is GitHub's main business model is folks um, getting on GitHub, creating repos, and um, using them. And so for them, it is helpful if, if it is easier for them, if they decrease the costs of funding folks through GitHub, then there will be more folks using GitHub. And so they have come, they have... Uh, the complement of their main business model, which is this, you know, funding an ecosystem, they commoditize it by saying, okay, we're going to create it ourselves and we're going to allow other folks to do it. Um, and then from that, then that leads back to their macro business model. So this isn't really hating on GitHub. This is just saying um, whenever someone takes something and abstracts it or commoditizes it, uh, be aware of does that thing then connect back into their macro business model? And is it a complement to that macro business model? Um, so and then the third piece here is 
uh, again on open source and thinking about the different kinds of internets that we have and the different kinds of jobs to be done. There's the consumer um, apps, there's prosumer apps, um, which are things that are closer to, uh, which are closer to like the creator side or whatever. Um, and then there's these new kinds of, of, of patron apps. And I think, and these are things like Patreon or GitHub sponsors or whatever, um, Kickstarter, etc. These new kinds of Bology from A16Z um, balances the or kind of uh, pits the consumer internet against the creator internet. And I think that's kind of true here. That I might go a step further and and think about not just creators but also people that are doing things where they don't get value in return. So this is kind of uh, sub differentiating within the creator internet where you have things like Kickstarter, which are I'd say part of the first part, which is like, I give money to someone on Kickstarter, then they give me a product in return. Sweet. That's different than something like GoFundMe, where I give someone something, but I don't really get anything direct back in return. The ROI is less clear to me rather than like feeling warm fuzzies or whatever. And so, excuse me, I think that we'll see a lot of these, um, as people have more than enough money, um, these kind of uh, businesses can start to exist. These kinds of um, applications can start to exist. And these kinds of jobs to be done can be solved. Uh, my favorite example of this is this new YC company called Ren, which is doing kind of um, carbon offsets as a service uh, direct to consumers. And so this is a perfect example of this. Where it's like, hey, I'm a person who, um, if I give to carbon offsets, it's not really helping me at all, but it's helping the earth. Uh, and so it's this new kind of patron internet. Um, and because this is a new um, job to be done, I'm not sure, you know, you're giving, you know, I'm not sure if it will actually uh, have a new business model associated with it or whether it will continue to use the same old business model, things like fees and things like that. So um, we will see, but I think that's an important trend to be aware of uh, these days. So that's all the three points on open source. And then on cities, yes, there's two big points here. One is I really like what Devin says about uh, seeing like a state and how it has a lot of different examples. And usually she doesn't like examples, but in this one, it felt like she was looking at a cool multifaceted object from a variety of angles. And each example uh, gave her more legibility around what that object looked like. I think that's a crucial, crucial perspective and one that we should take with almost all things in life, which is for any given thing, how many different perspectives are you able to take on the thing or, you know, view the thing as a multifaceted object, then take as many perspectives on that thing as you can. Uh, so this is both true for books, but it's true for mindsets, it's true for, for everything that exists in the world. So view the world as these crazy multifaceted objects that look different from different perspectives. I think that's really powerful. Uh, and then the second piece here is on tactical urbanism. And I think that there is, uh, A, this is surprisingly popular these days. Things like pop-ups, things like food trucks, those are cool. Um, and I think that it makes the city feel more organic and things like that. And I think I would just love to see more things that decrease the friction for tactical urbanism and also things that increase the norms around um, how you know, citizens of cities see how mutable they see their city. It would be great if it was both easy to change your city to some extent, um, and that the norms were uh, such that people thought that they actually could change their cities. I think that would be cool. And let me say actually one final note here, just just to um, to wrap things up, is on the city's point, I think, and, and Dev and I chat about this a bit, but I just want to reemphasize it here, is I think this is a very powerful perspective that applies to cities and to other things, which is this, take a proto-example of a thing and then replicate that across the system. So something like scooters or kind of emerging mobility uh, might be an example of this where you take the thing, it works in a very small scale, and then it can kind of just be replicated super quickly across the system. 
that one is good and that one has uh that one's like connected into the vc ecosystem but i think this is just a powerful mindset in general which is how can we make prototypes that have you know positive externality that are both positive for their individual environment and have positive externalities and spread quickly those kinds of things are very very powerful and we should design as many of them as possible um and or find out the generator function for designing them uh, okay so with that uh, hope you enjoyed today's episode. I think that this uh, retro at the end is better than the retro at the beginning. And I'll see you next week. Goodbye.